This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Jonathan Webb, and thanks for downloading another Science Extra Summer Bonus. This week, I'm joined by our online technology reporter, Ariel Bogle, to talk through 2018 in tech. How are you doing, Ariel? Not too bad, Jonathan. Now, you're a keen observer and indeed reporter of the tech world, including the big companies that really govern our lives online these days. And in social media especially, it's been a a big year. What do you think we've learned? If we learned anything, it was some hard lessons, some hard and bitter lessons this year, I think. When I reflect back on 2018, I can hardly shorten a list to three social media scandals that occurred on these huge platforms that we need hardly introduce, your Facebooks, your Twitters, your YouTubes. I think, though, that the Cambridge Analytica scandal that hit Facebook will come to define, to an extent, our understanding of social media. So one thing that a lot of thinkers around social media say, and especially one um, US academic, Zainab Tufetchi, she says that social media is constructed around selling ads. We have to remember that it's a platform of which we are not the main customer. Brands, advertisers, they are the main customer. And that's why it's free for all the rest of us to use. Exactly. And when it came to Cambridge Analytica, and to quickly recap for people, that was the scandal where it emerged that a quiz that had operated on Facebook for a time, the data from that quiz, which had sucked in the data of the quiz takers as well as their friends, was sold to a allegedly shady, not quite above the board political operation called Cambridge Analytica which had a lot of tentacles in some of the more controversial political movements of the last few years. So Trump's election, of course, in 2016, and also Brexit. And the people who ran that company were on the record as kind of bragging about how much they might be able to kind of sway opinion using data. And it turns out that's the kind of data that they were gathering through this backdoor Facebook mechanism. Exactly. So I think the jury is still out on whether what a Facebook like can tell us. So if you like Buffy on Facebook, are you going to be more amenable to the message of progressives? Or if you like, (laughs) I don't know, the singer Willie Nelson, are you automatically more likely to be open to conservative messaging? The jury's still out on this, but I think people were worried enough about the implications that the Cambridge Analytica issue became a really big one, forcing even Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, to testify before Congress. Mr. Zuckerberg, would you be comfortable sharing with us the name of the hotel you stayed in last night? Um, uh, no. Not especially keen with the taste of his own medicine, perhaps, there, Mark Zuckerberg, in in facing up to Congress, as you said. When did that come during the year? Because obviously, you're right, that Cambridge Analytica kind of scandal really breaking felt like a bit of a watershed moment. But there's been a few times since then that big tech bosses seem to have fronted various inquiries in the US. What have the high points been and what's emerged from all of that? Sure. So the tech bosses, people from Google, Facebook, Twitter, have been made to front committees in Washington, D.C. a few times this year. It's not just the Cambridge Analytica issue. It's also been the machinations of Russian bots and other operatives on Facebook, on their platforms. So they had to go and answer questions about that as well. But that issue has been somewhat drowned out towards the end of 2018, because I think now we're discussing even more the radicalisation of white nationalists on social media, on Facebook, Twitter and the rest. Yeah, it's come quite a long way from the arguably malicious usage of Facebook 
for political campaigns via artificial agents and bots and things through to quite old-fashioned hate crime just not being removed, right, and being given a platform on all of these systems. And there's been a bit of a shift uh, in terms of attitudes to that, especially in the back half of the year, would you say? Well, some really tragic events have forced this conversation into the public sphere. So, there was, of course, a, a series of pipe bombs sent to high-profile Democrats by a man now alleged to be called Caesar Sayoc. And some reporting by CNN unearthed that he'd actually sent about 240 direct threats against public figures on Twitter in the year or two leading up to those pipe bombs. People who had been the subject of those threats had complained about them to Twitter, reported them like you're meant to, and yet his profile remained. So Twitter, of course, has stepped up its policing of hate speech and other rhetoric on its platform. But the question always remains, is it enough? When is it enough? And then, of course, that sort of fine line between saying anything, being hurtful and free speech. I think we kind of know now that the social media companies don't have a silver bullet to fix this particular problem. It's going to be a few hard years of trying to figure it figure this out. And I think it's important that we, the users, weigh in on this as well. So they haven't got a solution, but do you think they've at least acknowledged now that they have a problem? And, you know, they've certainly been hauled before enough politicians to explain themselves. Are they at least on board with trying to address it? I think that they would genuinely love there to be a solution to this problem. And I think there are efforts to combat it. But in the lead up to the US midterms, there was a daily drumbeat of misinformation on Facebook, for example. You might remember there was a lot of discussion of a quote-unquote caravan of asylum seekers travelling up through Central America towards the American border. And that was just a magnet for this fake news, I suppose, and memes and really horrible sort of uh, suggestions being made about these people. Facebook just doesn't seem to be able to get quite a step ahead. No doubt they have taken a lot of actions, but this problem is just sort of building on itself and people get inspired and, and on it goes. So, you know, it's hard. You want to give them the benefit of the doubt, but at the end of the day, this might require a more uh, broad brush approach from government, the community and these crap forms. Although I want to say that they should pay for it because they have tons of cash. <laughs> <laughs> the big companies themselves. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right. But And what does a broad brush approach look like, do you think, right? Because as you say, it doesn't take long searching on there to find some nonsense. And that can just be replicated and created very, very quickly. I always come back at this point in the conversation to the role of online moderators. You know, few people know this, but when you report something on Facebook or Twitter, you say that person is abusing me or this tweet is offensive Someone reviews that. A lot of this process is automated, but sometimes a human looks at it. But that human is very unlikely to be within the same geographical borders as you are. So I've done a bit of reporting this year and talked to others who have made documentaries and the like about this topic. When decisions around what is hate speech in Australia or what is offensive to minority groups in Australia, such as in the Indigenous groups here, when that decision is outsourced, say, to the Philippines you know, who knows where it's outsourced to, are they going to be able to make the right, right decision in context? And I think this is a really interesting question that the, the tech companies seem unwilling to grapple with in a really open way. They're very loath to talk about just how their content gets moderated, the rules around it, and even where those moderators are. You always get a very like bland answer when you ask, where are the moderators that moderate Australian content? You have done some fascinating reporting on 
the cleaners, the street sweepers, if you like, of, of the internet that we all inhabit and exactly who they are and where they are, whether it's in the Philippines or uh, in one case, uh, you looked at a suicide support forum and the effort to try and keep that troll free, which you can understand is a very fraught space. And that's all been fascinating. We'll put some links to that up on the Science Show website where these Science Extra segments will be appearing in a podcast. If we shift from the tide of bad behaviour and misinformation briefly to the technology that might be coming along that makes it even harder to tell what's real and not on social media, Media. There's again been lots of talk about deep fakes and very realistic photos and especially now videos of people saying things that they never said potentially. There was a really famous video of Obama but now we've seen Trumps and all sorts being deep faked. What's the current state of play in that sphere do you think? A lot of people started talking about deep fakes. So in the past, this has been the purview of academics who are experimenting with the kind of machine learning technology that can take a thousand pictures of Obama and transform them into a video of him talking that looks pretty realistic, even though he never said the words they're getting him to say. But the public discussion of this really grew this year and a lot of people pointing out the real damage, of course, that could be done if deep fakes became prevalent online. Of course, this always starts with porn, and unfortunately this does too, because this really entered the public dialogue when it emerged that people on Reddit had been creating deepfake porn of the Israeli actress Gal Gadot, so putting her face on a porn actress's body. This raises a whole host of pretty awful questions, not only about the accessibility of this technology, because they were doing it with essentially free machine learning tools that you can find online, but also this whole Pandora's box of consent, questions around agency, the fact that a lot of these deepfake technologies were immediately targeted at women. It goes on and on. But of course, in the political sphere, a video that of Trump declaring war on another country, saying any host of things would be really problematic, especially if not fact-checked quickly enough and not taken down quickly enough. There still seem to be people saying that at the moment we can keep up though, right? Like at the moment... You can pretty much trust what you see video-wise because we've got the tools to tell the deep fakes, but that might not always be the case. So at the moment, if you see these videos of the fake Obama, there's some sort of uncanny valley element to it. Mm. His teeth don't look quite right. Apparently that's something to look at, teeth. That's really hard to render accurately in deep fakes. So at the moment, there is that element of... Is it? I'm not sure. Maybe people will pause if they see such a video. But certainly, like everything else, as the technology improves, we might not have that barrier. And we see those things travel even when they're not carefully constructed deep fakes, right? Like pictures purporting to be from the hurricane that's happening today that actually came from a hurricane three or four years ago just because people have decided to try and share them for their five minutes of fame or whatever it might be. So, yeah, it's a difficult problem to try and solve. But... Australia has had its own big tech story and people I'm sure will have seen it in the headlines. My health record. You've done a lot of reporting on this during 2018, Ariel. Give us my health record in a nutshell. So this is a project run by the government to give every Australian a electronic filing cabinet, I suppose, of their health details. So into my health record, you might put results. Your doctor might put a summary of the visit you had with them. And there are clinical benefits to be had here. So, of course, if you're moving between cities, it's good to have an electronic record of this stuff so you can go to different GPs. 
Uh, if you've got a pretty complicated health picture, the benefits are clear, I think. You see a whole lot of different doctors. They can all go exactly. to the same drawer of the same virtual filing cabinet <laughs> and compare notes. Yes, exactly. But the issue with this is it is a tech project. It's an attempt to put things online that were not perhaps online before, <laughs> and it got a little bit messy. So this used to be an opt-in scheme. When it started in 2012, you'd have to choose to be a part of it. But a few years ago, the government decided that the investment meant that they wanted everybody in it. And also a lot of the medical associations, AMA, plenty of doctors were behind this change. But to switch something from an opt-in scheme to an opt-out scheme is once again messy. And we saw that perhaps the legislation behind this scheme, some of the technology was perhaps not quite where it should be. So one of the key problems just from the start was people pointed out the legislation allowed police access to my health record without a warrant. And obviously this raised plenty of red flags. The government at some point decided, well, yes, that is a problem and put forward some legislation to change it. But more problems started to emerge. We also covered the fact that the My Health record potentially undermined the medical privacy of teenagers. At the moment, once you turn 14, your parents are not really meant to be able to see your Medicare details unless you give them permission. But under My Health record, the reverse responsibility was there. So if a parent set up somebody's My Health record, they could keep accessing it, keep controlling it until they turned 18. And these issues just kept emerging. Uh, the health minister, Greg Hunt, pushed back the deadline for opting out until November. And then towards the end of the year, under pressure in the Senate, he was convinced yet again to push it into January. So the stretch deadline got stretched again and people can still opt out now. January, uh, the until deadline January at the moment, 31st, yeah. The end of this month. And I think the debate will continue, especially now with the election of Karen Phelps, who took Malcolm Turnbull's seat of Wentworth. She's now on the crossbench and she, as the former AMA, Australian Medical Association president, has some strong opinions about my health record. So it'll be interesting to see whether the opposition and the crossbench continue to niggle the government about this in 2019. Certainly will be, and certainly important to dot all those I's and cross all those T's. Ariel Bogle, thanks very much for joining us to talk through the year that we've had in tech. Thank you. Now, next week is the last in this small season of Science Extra bonus material. So, after the Science Show podcast, I'll be here once more discussing some of the big stories affecting human health that broke during 2018. I'm Jonathan Webb. Join me then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.